Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, we'll get to Keith Pompey in a second when we know that he is on the line. I believe he is there right now. Uh, Let's bring on Keith Pompey from the Philadelphia Inquirer somewhere out on the West Coast watching the Sixers. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. What about you? Well, Jeff's just waiting for what you're going to say, so he's hesitant to say anything, but I'm doing well. Hey, you know what I I was going to (laughs) say? Yeah, go ahead. I'll stay quiet. Huh? What happened? Uh, No, go ahead. We're we're here. Go ahead. I'll stay quiet. (laughs) Jason, Jason, Rutgers could have been there for that, right? They could have. They could have. They broke my heart. I stayed up late, um, but they could have done what Michigan did. Yeah, anybody could have. Pitt Pitt could have pulled a Michigan. (laughs) So that's the funny thing. I said to Jeff, what are you going to say to Keith when he comes on and, like, rips Michigan? He goes, what am I going to say? Rip his school? It's my own school. He's got no response to you, Keith. Yeah, you know. You you are literally different. I I couldn't tell the difference from Michigan to Pitt last yesterday. (laughs) I couldn't tell. (laughs) <laughs> you're you're literally Teflon to maybe because because you can rip on Michigan every time you come on the show and I can't sit there and and, and give a hard time to your alma mater because it's also mine. <laughs> yeah, well, you can you can make fun of my high school. We, we're no longer around, but we did win the last basketball championship. Jeff's going to have to dig deep for you. All right, Keith. So you're out there in L.A., uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. funny. I think I saw the Sixers practicing at UCLA today while UCLA is about to play here at the Wells Fargo center tonight. Uh, tell us about mm-hmm. what the feeling is after the Lakers win and then what's going on with this team out there on the West coast. You know, it's funny because the, the feeling was, it was like, Oh, we, we got one. It, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't, uh, one of our most memorable victories, but we went in there and we got a win. You know, tonight is, is, is kind of different because, you know, Doc Rivers had a lot of success with, um, um, you know, with the Clippers. You know, right, he's the all-time winningest coach in regards to winning percentage and everything like that with the franchise. So this is kind of like a homecoming. You know, last year there wasn't any fans in there or very few fans just because of the pandemic. So, you know, this is kind of like a storyline here, and, and we'll see how the fans react to him, see – you know, things like that. But, again, you know, the Sixers, they have to keep pace. You know, here's a team that uh, is, is losing games, talking about the Clippers, but the Sixers are a game and a half out of first place. Um, I, I think, and if they lose, they could drop from third to, what, fourth. So it's one of those things where, you know, the Sixers, they got to be locked in and they know they have to play well to, to win not only today but try to get a victory, an upset victory on Sunday against Phoenix. You know, Keith, you mentioned that they're only a game and a half out of first place. So, yes, I know that the, that it actually worked out. But what people are wondering is, what were the Sixers thinking, playing the number one seed only a couple games out and sitting their two best players? You know, <laughs> you know, it's one of the things that I think with James, you know, it's a matter of they don't want him playing back-to-back because of the hamstring, right? Um, secondly, with Joel, it was a matter of everybody always thought that he was going to miss a game. 
But you would prefer for him to miss the first one as opposed to the game on the tail end of a back-to-back, right? Um, especially right. that one. But it would look to me that, hey, well, we're probably going to lose this one anyway. Uh, we, we might as well just rest our guys. You know, one of those things. But, um, yeah, it, it was it – was, I'm not going to say bizarre. You know, let, let's be honest. Like this, I did say that the 76ers are a game and a half out of first. But it also makes you wonder that the road would be a whole lot easier if they finish, what, third or fourth? You know what I mean? So it could be one of those things where, I mean, I'm not saying it, but, you know, it's like they they keep saying it's not about winning. It's about being healthy. But sometimes you got to question, well, when are they the games they're focusing on being healthy, (laughs) you know, in? You know what I mean? Because it just seems like that was the wrong game uh, from a health standpoint to rest players, knowing that it was a vital game. I was just surprised that they didn't stagger the days off. I I really thought that that was going to be their plan going down the stretch is to give one a night off so that you still have one in the game. But you mentioned the road ahead. This team this year, in past years, they've been dominant at home, and it's the road they've struggled. They're 24-11 and on the road, one of the best teams out there. What is it about this team getting out on the road that's different than when they're playing at home some nights? You know, I think that it's like the guys kind of – the fact that they get along now, the fact that it's kind of like a circle the wagon thing. And if you notice, when they go out on the road now, it's like Joel Embiid goes out to dinner with them. They do a lot of team building things. And I think, like, they're just a closer-knit team on the road. And, and then they were in the past. Now, again, at home is, is one of those things where, you know, guys, you come home, you go you go to shoot around, you go home, you do a lot of different things. They're just not together as much as, as one would assume just because of other obligations. But, you know, I do feel like it's one of those circle the wagon things when they go on the road. They just come through adversity. Now, we, we also have to be honest with ourselves and, some of these games that they were playing early on, at least in the road, it wasn't a lot of the stiff competition. A lot of their stiff competition came at home early on. You know, like Brooklyn was at home. Milwaukee was at home. You know, uh, teams like that. So I think it's starting to balance out a little bit. I do think the Sixers have improved, but I do think that that had a, a huge factor in their success. A, they circled a wagon, and B, you know, a lot of their stiffest competition, you know, was at home at, at, at a certain point in time. You know, you mentioned Joel Embiid going out with the team for dinner and things like that. There seems to have been over the last year, year and a half, the, this enlightenment of Joel Embiid. Uh, what have you noticed about the change in Joel Embiid or the maturation of Joel Embiid as, as both a person and a leader over the, the last couple of years? You know, I, I think it comes down to, you know, right now he knows that he is the, the, the leader of the team. I mean, he is the, he doesn't have to compete against someone else um, to be that guy. Now, it could be something like later on with him and James Harden, but I think it's a little different just because James is older. James has been there before. You know, he's been the focal point. And I, I think that when it was Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, they both were they both were like battling to be the guy, 
And then, you know, another thing is I, I feel like, you know, Joel is, is comfortable. Like he, and what I mean by comfortable is, you know, here's a guy who has um, a, a great contract. He just signed an extension that's going to kick in soon for $198 million. You know, he, he's, um, he has a, a fiance that he, he loves dearly, and you expect him to, right? That's his fiance. They, they have a young son. And, you know, Joel isn't – he's the type of guy who basically that's his life, being around family. He knows he's going to be secure financially, and he knows he's going to be a 76er. So I feel like, you know, he's more comfortable now. He knows that this is his team. You know, he, he's not competing against anyone. But early on, I felt like he and Ben Simmons competed against each other to see who was going to be the man. Excuse me. You know, you mentioned James Harden, and I'm curious what you're seeing for his fit both on and off the court. It seems like as much as his play is scrutinized on the court, he's kind of coaching up some of the other players. This team is nine and three with him in the lineup. And the stat that that I found more amazing, they score almost 17 more points a game per 100 possessions. 120 than when he's not in the game and Danny Green, Tobias Harris, Thibel and Embiid are shooting 41 and a half percent from three point range with him on the floor, just 21% without him on there. Can you talk about James Harden's impact? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it has a lot to do with not having a point guard, you know, as much as we love Tyrese Maxey and he's having a, a heck of a season, um, He's more of a two guard or a combo guard at best. And they didn't have a point guard. The backup point guard was Shake Milton. So you look at it and you see a guy, and I'm not saying that, you know, James is a traditional point guard, but you see a guy with a high basketball IQ who's right now trying to, you know, get teammates established and, and get them open shots. And it basically tells you all year, we kept saying, hey, this team needs a point guard. Well, this is what you get when you get one. Um, you know, and I think the reason why a lot of people have been really shocked by it is because they thought that he was going to come in here and we were going to see a lot of ISO James. But right now it's one of those things where he sees what Joel Embiid is doing. He sees a lot of what, you know, what George Niang is doing, Tyrese Maxey. So he, his goal is he wants to fit in. He's still bothered by that hamstring a little bit, and he just wants to go out there and he wants to play well, and and he and he just wants to um, get his make his teammates better. So that's the thing. Now, when you say off the court, um, you know I, I'm assuming you're talking about as far as the leadership ability he has, and you know when it's funny because you know first time court miles describing he says, look, you have two types of superstar players. You have the superstar player who basically shows up and he plays and he's not really around teammates. But then you have the other one who comes here and he wants to make everyone better. And that's who James is. He's here and he's like talking to Maxie, challenging him, challenging George Niang, Matisse Bible, all these other guys. He's challenging them to put in work and do what they have to do. So when you hear something like that, um, you know, when you hear that, that lets you know exactly um, why this team is being better because James is like, you know, helping out. I mean, the, a good example, after the, the first home shoot-around, 
James was teaching Joel his step back move. Now everyone has a step back, but James looks distinctly different than everyone else's. So it was, it was Joel, Sam Cassell, and James. And Joel kept traveling, <laughs> but <laughs> James actually took time to teach this seven foot two dude his patented move. And that's a sign of a leader right there, you know? So here, here's my big concern from watching, especially with the Raptors game. What are the Sixers going to do if they face a big lineup? You have Joel Embiid, then your power forward is Tobias Harris, who's struggling right now. But they got out-rebounded by a team that was not that much bigger than them in any way, by a lot in Toronto. And you've seen that time and time again, that the Sixers do not seem to get a ton of rebounds. What is going on, or am I seeing it wrong? You know, I think that when they go against these, you're talking about these big guys, like like a team like Toronto, I just think that they don't have the size or the athleticism. You know what I mean? You know, it, it's, it's, it's just a mismatch problem. I mean, if you look at the 76ers right now, you look at DeAndre Jordan, you know, a great locker room guy, but he may be a little bit past his prom, right? You look at, um, what's his a name, little. Paul Millsap. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> you look at Paul Millsap. Now, here's the thing about, here's the thing about, you just sound like me <laughs> coming, coming, coming at Jeff right now, right? <laughs> so you, you look at, you look at Paul Millsap, right? You know, they got him playing center when he's actually a four and he's 37 years old, right? You know what I mean? Right. So not only is he older, you have him playing out of position. But then for the most part, like, they don't have, like, their best players on this team for the outside of Joel Embiid, I mean, are, are like, stretch fours or guards. And George Niang, you know, he, they list him as, like, six eight six nine. I mean, he's, he's not that big of a guy. They can't match up with these teams. I mean, they can't match up against athletic guys, excuse me, athletic teams, with a lot of length, you know, like you go out there and, and they, the Sixers are just basically, um, you know, they, they're just too small and not athletic enough. And, and, and that's a problem. I mean, you look at uh, Toronto, I mean, is a re, and then I hate this, Nick Nurse is a hell, hell of a coach. You know, he's been getting the, he's been divide, um, the, uh, coming up with defenses to stop Joel Embiid since Joel Embiid's been in the league. So, you know, it's just a bad matchup in, in, in Toronto. They, you know, a bunch of 6'8 to 6'10 guys who can play multiple positions. They can play anywhere from, like, the 3 to the 5, and they got, like, 4 or 5 of them who can do that. So that's just tough for the 76. It, it, I think that's more of a roster problem than it is a coaching standpoint problem. It's like they just don't have the roster to match up against them. I just wanted to ask you about some of the other teams that they could end up facing. They all seem to have their own issues. Brooklyn, you know, who's playing, who isn't. New York will obviously change, so Kyrie can play there. In Miami, you see, and I know that this is overblown at times, but Jimmy Butler and Udonis Haslam getting into it on the bench. Uh, what is the state of the other teams that we should be looking out for now, along with the Sixers coming down the stretch? 
But I don't think that thing with Jimmy Butler and the Udonis Hassan was overblown at all. Like, I mean, I know they, they say that after the fact, and they, oh, this happens all the time, but I don't think we've, we've seen it. <laughs> I mean, if it happened all the time, it wouldn't have been all over the news, right? It wouldn't have been all over social media. Um, I think they have a problem right now with frustration. You know, Jimmy was a 76er. We know about him. We know that he gets frustrated. We know that he challenges people. But the way the way the way that whole thing looked, it was a bad look. And you look at it, here's a team that's number one in the East. It's a team where players have been struggling, you know, shooting percentage wise individually since the All Star break, including Jimmy Butler. So I think that's frustration. It's an embarrassment to them to go and lose to the Seventy Sixers without Joel and B and James Harden. So I think that's where Brooklyn. I mean, excuse me. Miami is they're frustrated. And when you look at a team like Brooklyn, that's a team that if I'm the 76ers, I want no parts of. I do not want to play Brooklyn, right? Um, I, 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 but the thing about Brooklyn is I don't know if Brooklyn is going to be able to beat Toronto in the play-in game. So with that being said, I look at Brooklyn probably being the number eight seed. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Kyrie, although he's cleared to play, in New York, you, you unvaccinated players cannot play in Toronto. So I in, in that game, the way it looks at right now, that that seven eight game would would be in in Toronto. So I don't see uh, you know um, Kyrie playing. But as far as like uh, Brooklyn, KD, you have Kyrie. I mean, I know Ben Simmons isn't playing. But I just don't see anybody on the 76ers being able to stop those two guys. I just don't wow. see it. And then with the with the addition of Drummond. Now, another team, if I'm the 76ers, I'm a little leery of, is Boston. Because for a while, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum were each other's worst enemy. It was kind of like iso ball. Like, now nah, I'm coming down, I'm shooting. And uh, I'm not passing you the ball. You're on the other side. I'm coming down shooting. These two guys have figured out how to play with each other. And then they have, you know, other guys who are just gritty and play hard, tough nose. You look at Al Horford. He was a, a disaster in Philly. But he's one of the best guys in regards to defending Joel Embiid. So there are three teams that if I'm the 76ers, I do not want to see early on in the playoffs in the first round, and that's Brooklyn, Toronto, or the Boston Celtics. You know, I'll take I'll take Chicago, I'll take Cleveland, but those other three teams, I don't want any parts of them if I'm the 76ers. All right, well, we, we know that you have to go because we're cutting into your rollerblading on Malibu beach time. But before we let you go, is there anybody that we haven't seen in the rotation in the last five games or so that's going to break into this rotation before the playoffs start? That you haven't seen? Nah, I don't yeah, see it's, it. it seems like we're I down mean, to eight guys. I don't know. But my thing is, like, you know, right now they got Jordan, right? I mean, a lot of people would love to see Charles Bassey. They would love to see uh, Paul Reed. But it just seems as if that Doc has more faith in, in, in the veteran guys, you know. And, and like, to me, if, if these guys aren't getting any experience 
and learning right now, it's hard to throw a Charles Bassey and a, a Paul Reed into a meaningful playoff game where the stakes are high if you don't even want to play them in a regular season. Isn't you know, that so why I they should getting time now, though, to give them the option to have that experience if they need them in the postseason? It just puzzles me it's, it's, that, that they're not taking the chance. Yeah, I think that the problem is, like, right now, it's probably even still too late if you want to be honest with yourself. I feel like in order for them to get those get, get the confidence up and, and play at an extremely high level, it's like they should have been playing all season. You know what I mean? I mean, the same thing with Isaiah Joe. You look at Isaiah Joe, and, you know, yeah, he's getting a little bit of minutes now, but he's making, like, <laughs> excuse me, early season mistakes and late critical games, which leads to his minutes being cut short abruptly sometimes, right? So to me, it's like one of those things where you look at it and you have to say to yourself, like, you know, you these are the type of guys that you have to play them throughout. I mean, you know, Tyrese Maxey, last year, he didn't get a lot of minutes that we thought, you know, just so happens that, Guys were messing up, and the Sixers threw him in there, and he played well. You know, but and, and just so happens that Ben Simmons didn't refuse to play for the Sixers. So now we got to see what he can do. But it, it was a point in time, like early in the season last year, you had Tyrese Maxey, and then Isaiah Joe was, like, right behind him. Not only was he knocking down shots, he was doing a solid job of defending. And then all of a sudden – he just stopped playing. So to me, yes, we can throw him out there, but I also think that these games are so meaningful right now that, and, and, and they're so far behind in, re, in regards to playing, getting uh, consistent playing time that, you know, a couple possessions here and there of mistakes would doom the Sixers. So I think that, you know, and, and Doc, you know, he says that this isn't the case. But, you know, everyone I talk to and the stuff that I'm seeing now seems to tend to make you uh, think that he doesn't have a lot of faith in young players. He likes that. Yeah. that that's, that's what it looks like from here. Look, Keith, we, we look forward to following you, reading you in the Inquirer, checking you out at Pompeii on Sixers. I know Jeff won't stay up to the game for the game tonight, so he'll catch it locked on Sixers tomorrow. Plus, you uh, gotta you got to catch Keith's surf page because I'm sure he's going out surfing after this too. Yeah. Yo, just you you guys want to know how I spent my off day yesterday? <laughs> yes. I, w- I woke up at 1.30 in the afternoon. Like, I went, you know, woke up at 1.30 in the afternoon. Then uh, my, my cousin came over. I had, like, dinner with her. And then around 8 o'clock at night, I was back in the bed. Like, seriously, right. dude, you know, I, I, I'm i like the most boring person on the road. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, like, think, I think we I'm need good. a live show of Keith Pompey moving from bed to food to bed. He, he's, <laughs> the, he's the DeAndre yeah. Jordan of reporters. <laughs> oh, Keith, he found a way to take a <laughs> shot at the end. Keith, you take care of yourself, yeah. man. Thanks so much for the time. Go little blue. Go little blue. Oh, <laughs> Talk to you later, man. Goodbye, yeah, Keith. Bye. <laughs> Jeff, you found a way to get a shot in. You couldn't That's say anything right. about a college basketball mm-hmm. team compared to DeAndre Jordan. 
Look, hey, I'm, if he if he's going to talk about how, no, nobody asked him to talk about how old he is. <laughs> that's what I would have been doing out there after I finished rollerblading on the beach. I told you I would have tried playing some of the younger guys sooner. I, I guess you know he's right. It's it's too late to do that. But I just you know, but is it is it the, to me the most fascinating part of that discussion was the the Toronto the potential of a Toronto Brooklyn plan. So how does how, how does that work? So well, is it a, one game seven plays one, eight. It's a one game plan. Seven plays eight. Nine plays ten. The winners advance to play the one seed and the two seed. And if that game, so it's funny so right I, now. So, so I have the records up right now. So Toronto is 41 and 32 in seventh and Brooklyn is 38 and 35. So there's three games back, but Brook, but Toronto and Cleveland are, have the same record. So you actually want Toronto to stay down. So yeah. it would have helped the Sixers if the Sixers would have beat Toronto. Yes. Because there was a, be a better chance that, that Brooklyn would then have to go to Toronto and couldn't have Kyrie play. Which is fascinating because everybody's focusing on the exemption that they gave for him to play in New York, but they're not really thinking about that. That if the game is in Toronto, he ain't playing. It, you, wonder, you wonder if Brooklyn's going to start tanking. Like it, it, it's now in Brooklyn's interest to get, they are a game ahead of Charlotte, two games ahead of Atlanta. It is it, it is in Brooklyn's best interest to lose as many games as possible going into the season at this point. How, How absurd is that? Yeah, that that's they absolutely. need to tank to make sure that their their second best player can play. Jeff, we got about five minutes till the till four thirty when we'll hit the break and come back with our Charles Oakley interview. I didn't want to gloss over. There's Phillies baseball, man. I want to give you the chance to be excited. You're watching games. I'm overreacting to preseason baseball. Life wait, what do you over? What, wait, what's the overreaction so far? I don't know. Didn't you say last week that the Phillies gave up a run, and I was all of a sudden afraid that the they were going to give up a ton of uh, runs? Yes, that overreaction. <laughs> yes, but I thought maybe we're going to like. I thought maybe we're overreacting excitement that the fact that the Phillies have a bunch of guys to hit. Nobody can feel the ball, but they got plenty of guys that can hit. They are going to mash the ball and not catch it at all. And it's going to be fun to watch. We can go over what the machinations of the lineup are. Uh, already an injury, Odubel Herrera uh, out four to six weeks. Can I be honest? I'm not terribly disappointed. I didn't like him as a player to begin with. I still Rather, can't believe they're, I, I, it's the one thing that puts a major damper on the beginning of this season is there was no reason he's not good enough to bring him back. And he's not worth it to bring him back, to have that be the tarnishing feature on what otherwise is a feel-good story to start the spring. Looks right now like you're going to have a Matt Veerling, Adam Hazley platoon. I wonder, and we had talked about it a little bit, you mm-hmm. and I. It show. wasn't, it's, but it's not just that, those two. After, after yesterday, there's discussion about whether Mickey Moniak is somebody that could fit in there for a while too. They okay. said that he's changed his stance. He's moved closer to the plate. You're gonna. He's not stepping over. There's a bunch of stuff that he has worked on in his swing. And if you saw him hit that ball yesterday, that was a shot. And I'm not saying he's a home run hitter because he's not. But if if he can be a, a 275, 280 hitter and play solid defense, he's in the mix. It seems like third base is not a lock yet. I keep hearing other names, and then you you hear Alec Bohm may be a prime target to be moved. I mean, how many people can hit and not field their position on one team? So do you think he ends up on the nine, <laughs> nine right now? <laughs> as many as are allowed on the field. 
<laughs> that's not true. JT's really good defensively. Yes, and and there and there's a chance that your pitcher can field, but that's about it. Uh, are you? Do you think he'll be on the team or that he'll be moved? I mean, he seems I like hope, a. I hope not. Like send somewhere for an arm. What you know, is he, it? What does it say about him at this point that that he's he he had the job yanked away from him last year? He's he's the he's the first pick, the first round pick of the Phillies. He was the prime guy in the in the farm system, and then. He comes up after losing his job last year. They give him the job to win, and he's already at a point where Camargo is on the cusp of potentially passing him, and the, the, the manager is making it clear to Bohm, yeah, even though it's your job, you haven't exactly grabbed it. I think it actually says that he is exactly who people thought he was when he was drafted. What I mean, you and I were doing a minor league show at the time. What did people say about him? He could hit the ball. They didn't know where he would fit on the field. He couldn't be in the outfield. He wasn't athletic enough for third base. He's not going to be a first baseman. He seems to be what they thought he was that the Phillies didn't want to believe he actually was. See, that's not even what I'm, I'm not even focusing on the physical tools. I'm focusing right now on the attitude. And, and, and so that's what I'm worried about is that, is that, Girardi's not somebody who usually comes out and says that I don't think he's honest, but I don't think he comes out and goes out of his way the way he did the other day with talking about Camargo and Bohm. And and you got to wonder, because we saw it in the minor leagues. I interviewed the guy. He's got an attitude, but it's not an attitude, an air of confidence. It's not Bryce Harper's air of confidence. Is an air of arrogance to him. And arrogance often prevents you from being able to learn. And while Alec Bohm may have tools, there's a lot of learning you have to do, especially when you're a taller player. And the question is whether he's learning it, not whether or not he's putting in some effort. And I wonder if that's the signal he's sending. And if that's the signal, then I'm really concerned. And I think they got to get him. We're going to have to watch something. We're going to have to watch what happens with that. But we are getting closer to opening day baseball coming April 8th. Jeff, let's leave it there. Let's head to break. When we come back, we're going to have a fun conversation with Charles Oakley. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. All right. Thanks, guys. See they you create next opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825. Repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, Jeff, something a little bit special here. We've got 19-year NBA player, coach, philanthropist, business owner, and author of the new book, The Last Enforcer. Charles Oakley, you are a busy man. Thank you for taking some time to join the show today. Thanks for having me, and thanks for wanting to know what's going on with the foundation and uh, in my life. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we, it seems like you're doing some amazing things with the foundation, and we want to get to that shortly. We want to get to sort of how you got there, though, and we figured we'd start with the book. Tell us about The Last Enforcer. What, what does that mean to you and, and how it tells your story? The Last Enforcer, um, you know, I think everybody know I played basketball, and people don't know my upcoming on my life. Um, they know I'm 6'9", 260. And I'm dark, but uh, it was a lot coming through my life. Um, it all started, uh, you know, my family, mom, sisters, grandparents who helped raise me to get to where I'm at today. A lot of people 
put their hands in the pot once the food got done. You know how that go. Uh, no, it's just a journey, and it was up and down. It was tough. Um, I want kids know it wasn't easy. Uh, you have to be focused and dedicated all the time because there's always something trying to make you run off the road, get a flat tire. You got to fix yourself and hope Triple A come and told you if something else was wrong with the car. But no, it's just my journey for to let people know I'm an honest guy. A lot of structure in this book that uh, it can it can move you in all different ways. And, I, you know, whatever I do, I try to help people and show love at all time. And that's what this book really all about. A lot of love. Well, it's about a lot of love, but it's also to me a lot about the player that we saw, at least I saw um, years ago and, and a different era of basketball mm-hmm. and toughness. And, and right. so for you, where did that toughness come from? What, what you know, book, we all have a story. Where, where yeah, did it come yeah. from for you? Well, I think in the book, I talk about my grandfather, how tough he was when he just walked to work, go to the field. He was a blacksmith. He did everything, never complained about work, just took care of his family and people around him. And I watched him grow. I watched how my mom used to take two buses to work, come home, cook, and just the process and never complain. And, you know, I'm not a complaining guy. I'm a giving guy. So all that comes from within the family. You know, the, the title of the book seems to say a lot about how the game was when you played versus how the game is now. We don't see as many enforcers. We don't see that discipline on the court uh, in terms of settling the situations. What do you see as the major differences now in the mentality of the players and the game itself? Well, basically, yes, the book was about the 80s and 90s. And I think a lot of people can confuse, you know, because they said, well, the basketball is not like that no more. I know I haven't played basketball in 18, 20 years. So I know it's a, it's a definite change of game. Um, it's a global market. It's all about the money. Uh, three point game. Uh, a lot of teams still don't understand that UL shooters watch you three. Go inside, get the best points you can get. Free throw line, a nice layup, a jump shot. But I think Golden State and spoiled teams, and um, it's a few other teams got some good shooters, but. Uh, only maybe about 20% or 80% still trying to find themselves because they're trying to be a copycat. Sometimes you can't copy some. Everybody can't say need to make a Luther, make a Luther song. Same, get your own style. <laughs> wait, wait, now, the, the style that I, that I remember and that I grew up was, was players were like fans. They hated the other team. The opponent was your enemy. You didn't, you didn't go and goof around with them and have dinner with them afterwards. When you see that, First of all, when you played, was that really what it was like that that the the other team was the enemy? And when you see players after a game goofing around and going finding out they're going out to dinner, do you see that any differently than your generation? It's a big difference. I think we all have friends, but we didn't show everybody in the world who our friend was. And I think that in this new age or AU, uh, it, it allowed this to come into the game. Everybody friends, and they carried the college. They came. It's. It, I mean. They make you shake hands in college now. So that's what a lot of this friend stuff coming from. You have to Yeah, that doesn't work out too well. <laughs> well, well, the coaches, you know, other day Hubert, when they played Duke, the guy didn't shake one of the guy's hand because he felt they did, you know, honor Mr. K. You lost the game. It don't matter. You know, K ain't playing in the games. The players playing and the coaches show to shake hands other coaches. So yeah, it's a it's a big difference. Um, you know, there's a lot of money involved now. It's, you know, they uh, got a lot of so-called wannabe superstars and you got 30 team i don't think every team don't have, like it used to be everything had two or three superstars but they didn't market it like that now you may have six really good superstars everybody else just good players and you know 
trying to get their 20 points to get a big contract. You know, the first chapter of your book, you go right into it with one of our own here in the city, knocking out a jackass <laughs> and you didn't punch him. You just slapped him. Uh, I remember going to see the games where you battled Charles Barkley. What was it like playing against him? And what was it like playing at the spectrum here with, with the Philly fans? So in this book, I mean, I really, you know, Barkley, we've been having it out since he put his hand on my face and he played with Philly. But no, we had a battle to our back in the New York days. We swept Philly, we burned the broom out with Chicago, then New York. Uh, Barkley's a great talent. I mean, I know he played with Moses Malone, Dr. J. They didn't like him. You know, he won't say it publicly, but <laughs> he just, he just, he wasn't a leader and he acted like he know everything. He wanted to be a governor, he want Alabama, he wanted to run for mayor. He, he don't have the quality. Uh, he on TNT, they let him say everything, so he think he know everything. So, uh, you know, I know Philly fans, you know, he did a lot for the city of Philly when he came out of Auburn. Uh, he showed, you know, he didn't let him down for his come and play. But like I said, I didn't win a championship. He didn't win one. Patrick didn't win one. Carl Malone didn't win one. So we all in the same bag uh, for us, like, bringing a team a championship that he was on the longest. But uh, like I say, they love him on TV, so I can't really watch him on TV because uh, I just, my screen, you know, he's so big now. So um, <laughs> yeah, I think he'd be more eating at, um, <laughs> at uh, halftime of these games than anybody. But he's, like I said, he's good for TV. I don't know if he's good for the kids who watch him. You know, one of the things that you're good for is, is that you went to an HBCU. Right. And, and HBCUs have now become more and more prominent what is it what is it like for you and, and how proud are you that you went to an HBCU and, and how do you think HBCUs the role has changed since the time that you went there? It definitely changed. Uh, I ain't said it had got better for sports. But I think it's lesser than sports now because you don't get a lot of players coming out. You got a lot of guys came out back in the 60s, 70s, 80s from the history of black college. You know, people don't have big names in the sport, but people probably oh, he probably went to uh, Clemson, Alabama. Ohio State, Michigan, because the name of the person. But I, I just went to my school, uh, CIAA in Baltimore this year, um, you know, Virginia Union Laws of Fayetteville. I think it's a lot of opportunities to tell kids that, you know, if you can't get into a big school, it's okay to go to a small school. But as you do, kids don't know, it's because you go to Duke or some other school, they still get some of the same books. It's, it's a subject, it's a subject. You know, if you're an engineer or you're a fan, I mean, uh, if you want to be an economic major, uh, I mean, politics, so the, some of the books are still at the small school, just like they're at the big school. And uh, just gotta, you know, some people can't go because the finance, their parents or whatever can't get the grants alone. But I think it made big steps since the back when I played. So you finish your, your career in HBCU and you're, you're told you're not going to go in the, the first round. So you don't go to the draft. You're at your coach's house. And then all of a sudden you're picked ninth by the Cavs and traded to the Bulls. And here you are playing with this guy. You, you may have heard of him, wrote the forward of your book, Michael Jordan. Yes. Tell us about that whole scenario and the whirlwind for you of going from this college at Virginia to them being selected in the NBA to then be playing with one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time in the game. So, yeah, being drafted, uh, that was crazy. And they were telling me, like, we don't know where you're going. Uh, so if they didn't know, I definitely didn't know. But um, they said, we'll, we'll let you go somewhere and set up. So I went to my coach house and um, had, had the TV on watching it. And they gave us the number. 
to the, I gave him the number to my coach house and uh, they said, well, when we think something's going to go down, we'll call and, you know, let you know, give you the heads up. But it was, it was, it was wild because I know I saw before they said guys that went to, to the draft and they get drafted. So I didn't want to embarrass myself. And I know I wasn't one of the top 100 schools. So I definitely said, I, I'll stay here and wait. Cause it could have been, like I said, four field round, but Someone named Jerry Krause in Chicago, who won six championship with Michael Jordan and Scotty and all them guys, took a chance with me. And uh, Big House game was a legend in the CIAA. And Jerry knew Big House, and Big House told Jerry about me. And Jerry, you know, he sneaked around. They called him Crumb, so he was sneaking around, and he watched me play several times. And he took a chance, and I, you know, rest in peace, Jerry Krause. But I, I owe my whole life to Jerry Krause for his NBA. Well, you mentioned that Jerry Krause was was integral into in you getting to the Bulls. Uh, he was also integral, I believe, in you leaving the Bulls. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so, so, is it true that you were actually at a Tyson Spinks fight with Michael Jordan when you found out that you were traded? Well, we was at the Tyson Spinks fights right there in New Jersey. Yep. And Richard Dent was with us, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. But uh, now I asked Mike once we, you know, he. Had, we sit down ready to watch the fight. You know, the, the fight didn't last, but what, 40 seconds or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we got a chance to talk about it right before it ended. But no, nah, he just said, yeah, we, you know, he said, yeah, I heard him talking about it, but they didn't say they was going to do it. And he was honest with me. So, you know, he was really upset about it. But I said, hey, man, I see you down the road. You know, my number's still going to be the same, and I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going I'm to protect the paint, and whoever come in got to get it. And you did that. You saw him down the road and in New York for 10 years. You, you played with Patrick Ewing. You, you played under Pat Riley. Uh, what was the experience like playing in New York City and then going up against Michael for a lot of those, well, those Pacers teams? First of all, it was great to play in New York. I mean, the fans, you know what they love sports. I mean, the football, the, the hockey, uh, baseball, the Yankees, um, and, you know, just, you know, one thing in New York, you go out and play, you got to play. I mean, they know when you're playing like soft or I ain't giving effort and they're going to let you know they're going to boo you, you know, some like Philly fans. Um, so my thing is, you know, I know I was going to play hard and do all this and that, and you got to win. I think I've made, I played New York 10 years. We made a playoff every year. So my thing is we didn't win a championship, but we gave fans something to come to see after the season, not just like, I think some fans, they love their city so much. They want to have something to talk about, not just regular season playoff. We go on vacation. Oh, yeah, we didn't make it, but we, we you know, we had a chance before we made the playoffs. So uh, I think that New York, uh, still missing that. Uh, they trying to build a team and it seemed like things just not going right there. I don't know why. It's just it's a lot of bad energy. They, they can't put it together. They, can't, they try to buy players. Try to draft players, they try to trade, they get they brought Phil Jackson in with a disaster. They brought some of the greatest, you know, coaches around to try to change the narrative of what's happening. But it's something in that building. And I think everything is said when you gotta look upstairs, who run the show, who in charge, you know. And once you get that straightened out, other things work out. Until they get some stuff upstairs straightened out, they're gonna have a hard time because Brooklyn is t- and took over New York. As somebody who played in the league for a long time, went to many different cities, what was your favorite city to play in as the adversary? Uh, I said that all the time. Um, my job was, I think that uh, 
I mean, the weather probably in Miami, L.A., but I just looked at every game that I had to go out and perform. I didn't try to, you know, say I was going to do more in one city than the other city was basketball. So I just I kept it professional. So you're a smart man. You just focused on the game in your career. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then after your career, you know, you obviously have always been involved in the community that that clearly comes from your upbringing and and how you were raised to give back. I read stories about how you used to give 20 and 30 dollar bills to people sleeping outside of the stadium and they'd wake up and there was a surprise. It seems like you've kept that going forward. And, and with March being National Problem Gambling Awareness Month, You've got your Oak Out Hunger Project that you're partnering with the Etain Foundation. We've actually had a couple of your board members on there um, in the show. We had Bill Pasquale and, and Amani Toomer on before to talk about that effort. Can you talk about Oak Out Hunger and, and what it does and how it helps? So Oak Out Hunger is basically we try to go to the inner cities of shelters and stuff, uh, programs, and try to give back. Today, like I said, we're in Philly. Uh, you know, um, our goal is one well, we keep doing that. Uh, you know, go come back around and build basketball courts in these cities. Um, we just want to show people that you know we got something going on. Oh, got hungry. My partner's wages score. Who we uh, been doing this, but now I have a, a investor in, to me to be a partner, and I, I and I got to thank Bo for going out his way to, to uh, partner with me. It's all about. Wages scores by you know being a professional on uh, many years in the NBA protect the legend. Now I want to check the younger youth about gambling, responsible gambling, and showing that every penny, every percentage you lose, you can donate it back to your charity in your city. And uh, so we're just trying to show them that you know I think that people who these other places, big casinos or stuff, don't do too much giving back from it. You know they might send a check. I'm talking about we come to the you know we like like. We like Ukraine. We got people on the ground. We trying to come in, cook the meal, serve the meal, put a smile on your face like the families today here. And, you know, sit down and eat with them. Hear their story. You know, we did the Super Bowl. We did Skip Row. We fed 800 people. Also in Cleveland, we fed another 800. So we're just trying to show you. We're not trying to just be a, a flash in the pan and just never come back. We're going, we always recircle the city we go to and let them know that we really appreciate them giving us a helping hand what we doing and we trying to get back it's got to work with both and um just you know like young generation they need to support and let them know that you know but you got to be 21 over and i think that the younger kids got to realize that you know tic tac taking over and they got an old guy like me doing tic tac so <laughs> hey i'm just trying we got to we're gonna pass the torch to them i want to show them i love them for trying to pass the torch and i want to just hey i don't mind trying doing something that you're doing because you're doing something that i'm i'm doing and try to partner up with them and show the love how important is to you you you've developed a, a large platform because of who you are because of your personality because of your the way you played the game you're now using that to give back to your community. How important is it for you to do that? And how important is it for you to, to teach younger people that this is what they should be doing, that they have an obligation more than just to go out and make money or, or become famous, but also to give back to their community? I think that's a lost art these days because management, especially I think the NBA don't and don't make like I think when I played with you know like the New York Chicago, they, they had every year you had to do eight to ten appearances outside of your contract, 
And now I don't think that the man is on these the playoffs because I see a lot of people be once I can't get in touch with this guy, that guy. Ain't no point to get in touch with him. I think that you see stuff. They got to see it. I mean, I know they're flying private planes and getting limos straight to the hotel, but it's tough out here to be right around the block sometime when you out of that. Why did you do when I played? After lunch, I walk down the street and you see so much, you, you know, it take, you know, my heart was just like, wow. And, you know, and I think they can make you stronger too. Not just because you want to be stronger because you're always around your friend and family. Other things can, if you got a good heart, other stuff can like humble you to like really think about other people too. And I took that to liking. And when I was seeing them people when I was walking down the street, and you know, like I was in, even when I'm coaching the big three, I still do some of that stuff. I got a few minutes to walk around, see people, see if people are laying on the street, they need a helping hand. I have anything but a sandwich or coffee or something. It's just a thought. I mean, sometimes people don't know who did it, whatever. But you know, the man upstairs looking down, know, you know, if you're real or not. So you know, you did it. You know, you helped those people out. Right. It's on the gambling side. Your concerns there. Have you been surprised how much these sports have embraced gambling, and oh. you have concerns about how immersed it's becoming in the game? I mean, we saw Calvin Ridley place a $100 bet or something like that. And now he's suspended right. for a year when he wasn't even playing. What concerns do you have as a former athlete where there was a bright line that now seems a little bit blurred? Well, it's a great question. Um, I think when I came into the league, it was about drugs. Um, there was a lot of guys on cocaine, you know, shooting, you know, snowing cocaine, free basin and da, da, da. And, you know, they finally got control of that. And then, you know, with cocaine and drinking. So now about 10 years ago, I seen the NBA easing back into it, doing stuff with Jack Daniel, the other liquor sponsors, this and that. So now weed is illegal. And guess what the commissioner of the NBA said? We're not testing for mar <laughs> marijuana no more because he know 80% of the guys are smoking it. And that's not good. Now, now you see gambling, Caesars, the other outlets. They got, you know, professional guys doing the marketing. So everything they said they wouldn't do, these sports teams that they're doing, is a, everything is about the dollar. Money talk now. And they ain't forgetting about all these bad habits that money, you know, things can lead to. You know, like I said, gambling, you know, sooner or later, they're going to be an NBA team in Vegas because you already got football, hockey, baseball is definitely going to come to the NBA. I mean, just they, it's a copycat. They're going to follow one another. Everybody's trying to do one another, not just the players and people in real life. Corporations doing the same thing. So on the lighter side with gambling, we've all I don't know anybody that hasn't watched the last dance. Uh, I'm sure that you have too. Uh, part part of that last dance was you shake your head and say, Michael was so competitive that the, the poor security guard, he kept gambling with him regarding rolling the quarters against the wall. Was he really was Michael Jordan really that competitive with that many things? He was a competitive guy, um, you know. I'm the black cat. He's lucky. I mean, when I played with him, I still we still best friend. He did a four in the book. I mean, we know like Super Bowl. And I think boxing. I mean, stuff just like, who do you think I'll win? I swear my mother, my kids, I guess just conversation over the last 30 some years we've been friends. If I asked him 75 times, he might have been right 72 times. He's, is he upset about the three times that he's not? No, no. He just he picked the right team. Or he <laughs> his compensation. 
He still, I think, in the last two things, he he might be over two, but he was seventy-two out of seventy-three for the first seventy-three, and that's amazing. He just, it's just something about him. I mean, ping pong, pool, putt, one of the greatest putters ever. Uh, running, I mean, the man just, just stuff just thriving, and you know that I, that's been there since I first got there in Chicago. He didn't speak out of. Flex his muscle early, but when he started, about six, seven years in the league, that's when his whole career took off. He got strongly on the court, and his mind just changed into this guy. Like everybody said, I was watching something, and they were saying about Michael Jordan and um, so, so I think it was football player, baseball. Anyway, they said they say it should have called him Oh Utah, and they said that he's a killer like Double Seven. You know, so he was just, he just turned it. I mean, he made this switch. I mean, he got Tyler getting beat up by Detroit and this and that. Everybody talking about he'd never be good as Madden Bird. And as a Scotty, a couple years with him, and Jay Krause put the craft together, they went on a hell of a run. Well, look, we, we are thrilled that you had the career you did with all the players that you did. We're more thrilled with what you're doing after your career and the way you're using the platform. And we thank you for helping out in Philly today. How can people support Oak Out Hunger if they want to get involved and, and help what you're doing in the community? Uh, we can go to um, Oakley Foundation. Um, go to, I mean, thewagescore.com. Uh, uh, you can just, you know, Charles Oakley Foundation, all of that. We there. We looking for you know. I ain't saying we looking for people that sponsor us, but we looking for people that help us with helping hands on boots on ground. We don't have to be financed. Uh, so I think I have a you know the best pod in the world now. So I finally got that, and um, we can you know say we did ten last year. We're gonna do thirty forty this year because I had the support now. You can follow us on, uh, yeah, Oak Out Hungry and uh, Oakland Foundation. And uh, we just, we, we, we rocking it. And uh, people are going to really be surprised about midsummer. So much stuff will be going on and people going to get a hold to it. They're going to want to be a part of it. Well, we'll make sure to put it out on our social accounts and keep following. Uh, we hope to keep in touch with you. Thank you so tell much. Me, and to, not to cut you off. Tell me to get that book, The Last Enforcer. It's, it's dynamite. I can't wait to hear people's reactions to it because I mean, you don't hold anything back. Uh, And that's only like 70% of it. I got another 30% left. Well, wait, 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 wait. So, so what, when is, when is the other 30% coming out? (laughs) And uh, after I do the movie and the documentary, so I got two more, about two more years. I'm going to finish it off. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to do like Frank Sinatra. I'm just going to do it my way. All right. Well, we hope you'll come back to, to tell us all about it. Uh, we're going to bring Barkley. Me and Barkley smoke a cigar. Maybe Jordan let him play AT Hole again one day in life. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem joining you guys. We are willing to make that sacrifice. Uh, Charles. I would love to sit in the room with him. He'll probably, uh, he'll probably be sweating. He's like, uh, the heat is 120. Maybe sweating so much. I would love to sit in the room and just watch you two. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we, we all know that Barkley has a horrible swing when it comes to golf. Is he no, just he used as to bad be a seven handicap, though. He used to be around seven. I know, but it's painful to watch him sway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, got, he had a bad swing and got 400 pounds behind it. <laughs> that. Well, well, Charles, we'll, we'll work on getting you guys in the room together to finish this out. And we can't wait to hear the rest of the story as you tell it. What a blast talking to him. I didn't expect to hear him continue to go after Sir Charles the way that he did, but he clearly has some thoughts still. 
I think a lot of people have thoughts about Charles Barkley, which he kind of asks for. I mean, if you're going to keep talking like that, you're kind of inviting people who don't like you to just comment on them. But I think it would be they should have a whole special 30 for 30 just on all the people that don't like Charles and bring them all together in a room, have an intervention, and then Charles will just be enlightened and then he'll want to just get along with everyone. Did you think it was what do you think? Did you think it was nice that I volunteered us to help uh, manage the detente for all of them and join in the cigars and the golf? It, it is amazing. You, you will be on the next presidential commission for negotiations if you're able to pull that off. I'm nothing if not able to plug us <laughs> in. Uh, look, he's obviously- but his, But look, his, his work is very important. And I think that's the thing. I mean, I don't know if most people know that Charles Oakley is doing all of this good stuff. And I think it's important for people to see that, you know, the persona that was Charles Oakley for so many years is is a persona on a basketball court, not all the things that he does off the court. I thought it was fun to hear about sort of the differences in the league, too, uh, you know, from his book and, and to his own opinions. I thought you asked some good questions there. So any final thoughts, Jeff? Well, we got lots of basketball this weekend. We got Sixers. We got NCAA. And yes, I'm sure that everybody can keep taking shots. Nova for Michigan. Good luck, Nova, going forward. I didn't even say it, but sorry to hear that for you, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night. Top you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.